At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll hear from Katie Porter, the new member of Congress who flipped a longtime Republican district in California's Orange County. She'll talk about defending the Postal Service and about ending student loan debt. Also, changing our broken criminal justice system. For that, we'll turn to Jody Armour. He teaches law at USC. He's a prominent defender of Black Lives Matter, and now he's got a new book out with the provocative title, N-Word Theory. It's about race, language, unequal justice, and the law. But first, a leader of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles confronts the LAPD outside her house. Melina Abdullah is a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. She's also professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State Los Angeles, and she appears frequently on the news. She's been on our podcast. We spoke with her about the protest movement in L.A. last week at an online event hosted by the American Prospect and Harold Meyerson. The day after she was on the front page of the papers in L.A., she explained what had happened. Yesterday, um, LAPD came to my house surrounded my home. There were dozens of officers and cars. And my initial assumption was they had to be on my block for something else. And my friend was here, um, or had just arrived and he alerted me, comrade alerted me that there were police. And I said, I argued with him. I was like, ah, they're here for something else. And, you know, some time went by, I was on a phone call. And then I went to the window and looked out and two officers ran across the street and pointed assault rifles at me in the window. And so then we heard over the loudspeaker, everyone in my address needs to come out with their hands up. So I have three children, single mom of three kids, and we were preparing actually to go to a press conference, which is why my comrade was coming to bring me to this press conference. And um, I was concerned for my children. So I put them in a room, you know, away from the windows and proceeded to come out with my hands up. But I decided before I came out that it was important that I live stream so that people could see what was happening to me. And I figured if I were gonna be shot by the police, I didn't want it to, you know, be done in a way that nobody saw it. I wanted it documented. And I also wanted backup. So I called for backup on Instagram, gave out my address, which I, you know, probably shouldn't have done. Uh, well, I don't know if I shouldn't have done it because people did show up, you know, and I wound up coming outside to see that dozens of my neighbors were outside. 
and were there to make sure I was safe. And um, two of my neighbors um, refused to allow me to walk towards the police without them. And one actually put his body in front of mine. And um, uh, afterwards, you know, I, I thanked him, of course. He said, well, you weren't going to be the one to take the first bullet. So when we got down to where the police were about two houses down, they said that someone had called and said that I was, me and my children were being held hostage on a million dollars ransom. That's why they were there. They didn't ask me my name. They didn't ask to see the children. They didn't ask me for ID. So I said, we weren't being, they said, was I okay? I said, yes, but they didn't ask me any other details. So I don't believe the police story, which is in the news that they were just responding to a call. I did ask one of the officers if he knew who I was because I'm pretty um, well known by LAPD and they denied knowing who I was. Um, even though I would assume if you were coming to an address, it would say automatically, who lives at that address, right? So it just sounds like a lot. I think I said on the video, this is a setup. I still feel like it was a setup. And I think it also proves as we're talking about um, the brutality of LAPD. I think that the tactics have evolved, but they still continue to be one of the most brutal police forces in the country. If you think about what kind of trauma that was for my three children, and tr what kind of trauma it was for me, you know, to mm. have experienced that. Um, I think that they continue to engage in that same process of targeting um, organizers, of terrorizing Black folks who dare to stand up, um, which is what happened mm -hmm. in Watts in 1965, which is why it wasn't just Mar Marquette Fry who was arrested, but his mother and his brother who came out to be, you know, to aid him. The community became targeted because they came to his defense. And finally, and then I'll be quiet after this, I think it also underscores what we say that for Black people, safety has never come through police. It comes through the building of community. It was my community who kept me safe from the police yesterday. And so, yeah. At the end of the live stream, uh, Molina turns the camera to herself and says, okay, everybody, you don't have to come to my house. Let's go to the press conference. Just totally cool and calm after this nightmarish experience. So Molina, congratulations on, uh, on staying cool at the end of this. It's an incredible end to one of the scariest videos I've, I've seen in a long time. In our conversation, I contrasted the movements in the late 60s in L.A. with Black Lives Matter today. In the late 60s, the black radical organizations were bitterly divided. The Black Panthers and Ron Karenga's US organization were engaged in rivalries and feuds that culminated with two Panthers being shot and killed at UCLA by members of US. The white left of the late 60s was also bitterly divided, with different factions of SDS each expelling the other from the organization. Black Lives Matter, in contrast, has not had any of that kind of conflict or rivalry or feuding with other groups. They've had remarkable solidarity. 
I asked Melina, how did you do it? Well, seven years of work has been, has helped us refine it. We're working on it because we've been committed to it for the last seven years. I think centering um, it being a womanist movement, black women at the center of the movement has taken a lot of ego out of it. I think that something that I don't always center, but others in the movement are better at it than I am is the healing justice aspect of the movement. What I am committed to and what I um, do attempt to practice is building a movement that's restorative, not depleting. So I think a lot of the infighting comes from just being stressed out, you know? Yesterday was one of the most harrowing experiences of my life. And immediately my team rolled up for me. Immediately. We still did the press conference. We still did the protest at Jackie Lacey's office. When we got to Jackie Lacey protest, one of our comrades, uh, Sikh brother, made sure that the kids, because my kids are involved in the movement too, had popsicles and chips and Gatorade to make them happy because they'd experienced such trauma. And after we finished protesting in front of Jackie Lacey's office, nine of our clergy members came and prayed on my front lawn for about an hour and a half. So I think understanding that the wellness of activists is important to keeping the movement well um, has also been a part of it. And I want to be clear, it's not perfect that there are times of conflict. Um, but we've, we've also learned that conflict doesn't mean blowing up the spot, right? Conflict means figuring out when to shut the door and allow ourselves to have that conflict. And we've learned a great deal from organizers who were active in the 60s. We have some of them who are part of Black Lives Matter now who teach us, for instance, um, the practice of criticism and self-criticism. So you can't point the finger without having three fingers pointed back at yourself. So what is your role in the conflict? So I think all of that has been really, really helpful in building a sustainable movement. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles, thanks to the American Prospect and Harold Meyerson for those clips. time for Katie Porter, the new member of Congress who flipped one of those longtime Republican districts in California's Orange County in 2018. She had been a law professor at UC Irvine, where I'm also on the faculty, and she was a student of Elizabeth Warren. She's an expert on banking who serves on the House Financial Services Committee. She's also been a key supporter of legislation to reduce the influence of dark money in politics and she's a vocal supporter of Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. In a conversation at a Nation magazine event with our publisher and editorial director, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Katie Porter was asked about student loan debt. The crisis of student loan debt is not just a crisis of those who have student loan debt. It is an overall crisis for our economy. So if you never had debt, good for you. 
if you went to college back when it cost $50 or whatever, these numbers that just seem impossible to me, good for you. If your parents or grandparents were able to pay or you got a scholarship, great. But the student loan debt overhang is holding back our entire economy. It is both a microeconomic household financial problem, but also a structural macroeconomic problem. And there are some wonderful studies by progressive economists um, showing that if we would lift that student loan debt burden and substantially relieve that student loan debt burden, our entire economy would be stronger, would be more stable, and would have more, more engine, more potential for innovation. Um, student loan debt is also not a young person's problem. And I think, you know, I watched with sort of the Bernie campaign and some people I know, including the, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Eater is a Bernie voter. Well, he wasn't a voter, ah. but he's a Bernie fan. Um, at one point in my house, I had Bernie fan, a Kamala fan, a Booker fan, and I was the Warren co-chair. So it was a real hot mess at the dinner table. Let me tell you, I was living the dream every night at dinner. Um, but I think one of the things that is important in sort of young people being attracted to Bernie because of his willingness to take on student loan debt and actually do something about it, not just pander, was actually student loan debt is a huge problem for middle age and older people. Um, you know, I heard Elizabeth Warren say last night, you know, people are having to pay for 20 years. Yeah. And I thought to myself, Elizabeth, 20, 30, 30, 40. And the fastest growing group of bankruptcy filers in this country is people 70 years and older. And so I think there's an overarching problem of people carrying debt later into life that I'm really interested in that's connected to that student loan problem. But people who are now trying to retire with 10 or 15 years left on a mortgage, this, we, didn't, we didn't actuarially build retirement systems that way. And so that's something that I think about all the time. So yes, I think we should forgive student loans, um, but I think there's no, we, we cannot do that without at the same time having a plan for how we're gonna tackle reducing the cost of college going forward. It just doesn't make sense to solve the past and set us up for the same problem again in the future. And so I, I think one of the things I'm really interested in is we've seen a number of plans for how to um, how to reduce and you know forgive student loan debt, the federal government could do that. It's pretty, it's politically really challenging, but it's it's policy wise pretty straightforward. How to bring down the costs of college um, is actually a more challenging problem. Yes, part of the answer is more federal and state funding, but part of it is also that college costs a lot more, and so states are paying the same proportion of college costs that they used to. It's just that the other half is so many more dollars. And that's something that we really need to have a conversation about and about the role of the federal government in doing that. So, you know, my goal is to have college that, um, you know, you could work in the summer and earn enough to pay at least your tuition, if not your room and board. That was true for Senator Elizabeth Warren. It wasn't true for me. It wasn't even close to true for me. When my children found out how much college costs, they told me that they didn't want to go because they don't want to do that to me, mom. So that is a system that is deeply broken and that is, that is inhibiting a whole generation of children's ambitions and potential. And so I'm, I'm really interested in not just solving the past overhang, which I think is a macroeconomic structural issue for our economy, but also in what these high costs of education are doing to to shaping opportunity for young people, particularly in ways that affect people of color um, and people from lower income communities and people from rural areas, people with less advantage.
Katie Porter was also asked about vote by mail and how to defend it from Trump's attacks. Uh, with regard to the post office, we need to think about the post office and talk about the post office for what it is, which is a civic treasure. It is part of our government. It is part of our institution. Um, we need to treasure it. And so we need to fund it and we need to protect it from structural um, harms that, that allow it, that have, that have put it where it is today. So many people don't know, the last several years ago, there was a law passed that requires the post office to fully pre-fund its pension, 100% fully pre-fund its pension. That's not something that any business in this country could possibly do. That's not something that we ask any other part of government to do. So we're putting those kind of barriers on the post office and then they say, well, look, you're failing. We're hampering them from modernizing, from offering more services to the community, postal banking, um, being able to sell products that people need. Um, and then we're pointing at them and saying, you're failing. So I'm a huge champion for the post office. I think it's an incredibly important institution. I think about all of the seniors right now who are relying on the post office to get medicine, um, and other people who are not able to leave their homes to get medicine. I think about the role the post office put, has long played in serving the community of people with disabilities. It is such an important institution. So we have to fund it. We have to fight Trump's attacks on it. Um, the Oversight Committee is gearing up to have a hearing um, looking at what Trump is doing um, and Trump's appointee as Postmaster General is doing to the post office. But to be clear, first and foremost, if you, like me, want to save the post office, get out there and vote for Biden-Harris and make sure everybody you know can and does. We have to try to help the post office hang on for the next 84 days. And when we win the White House and the Senate and the House, then we can begin the structural reform to rebuild the post office and to, and to allow it to recreate itself for the next several generations of Americans. With regard to mail-in balloting, I mean, this whole dynamic over absentee versus mail-in and the, the language confusion, um, one of the things that, that I'm a big fan of is making sure that we're pushing for um, secretaries of state and county registrar of voters to be adapting and using technology to combat some of these risks and perceptions. Um, and so in Orange County, for example, you can track your ballot. You can see that it was mailed to you. You can see that it was received. You can see that it was opened. You can see that it was either counted or not counted. If it was not counted, you can see the reason and you have the opportunity to contact the registrar and try to fix that. That is the kind of transparency that we ought to be bringing to this entire, entire voting process. And so I think the American public, by the way, strongly supports vote by mail. Um, Trump is trying to sow disinformation, um, but I think we just need to keep pushing back at it. Um, and, and I think we also as progressives, I just want to caution, need to be realistic about what we can accomplish with vote by mail, particularly in this cycle. Vote by mail, every American, especially in this pandemic, but I think in general, every American should have the right to vote by mail, should be able to vote whether they can't get out of work or they can't leave their house, whether they're home with kids, whether I mean, something like 30% of polling places today are not handicap accessible, holding back people with disabilities from being able to exercise their right to vote. So I firm believer that everybody should get a mail ballot, but historically in the last couple of years, when you look at who chooses to vote by mail, 
that coalition is older, whiter, and more conservative. And I can tell you sitting here in Orange County, that's not my winning coalition to keep this seat. So we have to recognize that there's significant proportion of Americans who still want to go in person to vote. They don't, they don't trust a mail-in ballot. They don't believe it will be counted. Um, and giving them electronic verification and a system to track their ballot can help address some of those concerns over time. That's Katie Porter in conversation with Katrina Vandenhoevel for The Nation. You can watch or listen to their full conversation at thenation.com slash events. Now it's time to talk about changing our broken criminal justice system. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at USC and a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute's Center on Crime, Communities, and Culture. He's been all over the place this summer talking about Black Lives Matter on NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, and the NPR stations here in LA. And now he has a new book out. It's on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Jody Armour, welcome back. Great to be back with you, John. So what's the title of your new book? Ah, yes. Nigger Theory. And that blood-soaked epithet, that N-word, we've come up with that euphemism after the the O.J. Simpson trial when Mark Furman used it so many times that the press had to come up with some way of saying it without saying it and came up with the N-word formulation we've been using ever since. I, I... take it seriously that people find that word distressing, painful, violent. It has roots in a unapologetically and avowedly racist past. And many believe that current applications and expressions of it, it's tainted fruit of the, of the poisonous tree. I understand all that, of course, agree with it 100%. But I also recognize the power of black artists and also writers and others to harness other potential in the word. Uh, people like Tupac Shakur, Nas, Cube, Jay-Z, Dave Chappelle for that matter. There are, a lot, there are a number of black writers and artists who have found a way to engage in oppositional discourse through using that barb epithet contrary to its usual meaning. When Chris Rock says, I love black people, but I hate niggas, he's using the N-word in its traditional, ugly, vicious sense. Somebody like Tupac Shakur, he's using the term as a term of endearment, as a term of solidarity, a will, uh, Uh, a standing in solidarity with these brothers who I recognize as targets of this historical epithet, just like me. We both share that faith that we are what has historically been referred to as N-words here in this nation. And yet we are going to maintain our sinews of connection, our solidarity, our love and affection for one another, despite how the the rest of the world looks at us and tries to otherize us. So you open your book with a political battle cry. You say, call me the N-word. And then you quote an eloquent critic of yours who points out that, look, you went to Harvard. 
You're a tenured professor with a named chair. You live in a beautiful house on the top of a hill. He says, you, sir, are not an N-word. You reply to this. You have a magnificent reply to this. Uh, I'd like you to read it. I'd be glad to share this with you, John. But I say, call me a nigga first and foremost to assert solidarity with and express love for a criminally condemned man whose conviction relegated him to the status of a nigga in the eyes of many and whose legacy lives in every word I speak or scribble about blame and punishment. I look at our criminal justice system through lenses ground and polished by his experience. I cannot think about legal writing without seeing a black man desperately click-clacking on a royal manual typewriter on his cell floor deep into the night in search of his own salvation. That man, doing 22 to 55 in the Ohio State Penitentiary for possession and sale of marijuana, he was my dad. All that stood between him and a lifetime of iron bars and cell blocks and prison yards was word work. Nothing but the Queen's English he and that royal keyboard could crank out. After teaching himself to talk and think like a lawyer from the warden's own law books, he drafted his own writs and represented himself pro se through the state and federal court system, delivering his own oral arguments to appellate tribunals along the way, and ultimately vindicating himself in Armour versus Salisbury, a Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals case I now teach to my first year criminal law students. Hashtag poetic justice. <laughs> Hashtag poetic justice. So your father got himself out of prison in Ohio and changed the law in America. You know, most of the focus of the movement for black lives has been on the police, police killing black people, defunding the police. But you say the prosecutors are key figures in the justice system and that radically progressive prosecutors right now are reinventing the role of the district attorney. Tell us a little about them. Oh yeah, we've come to realize that the linchpin of mass incarceration, really one of the core drivers of it is the prosecutor's office, uh, law and order, tough on crime DAs. We went from uh, prosecuting one out of three people who came before a prosecutor roughly for felons to almost two out of three. Prosecutorial discretion was exercised in such a way as to, as to charge as a felon. And you just do the math on that and you can see that that's going to add up to um, bulging jail and prison cells very quickly. The tide start to turn over the last four or five years with the election of people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, in which he was elected to the head DA position as someone who'd never prosecuted a case in his career or life, who had been a public defender and defense attorney only his entire career, and ran on the following platform, in cash bail, address police misconduct, in mass incarceration, and got 75% of the voters of Philadelphia in the general election to vote for him. That, John, was unthinkable 10 years ago. And now it's an everyday reality because the Overton window has shifted that much, and I'm trying to help that shifting window with this book. A lot of the present argument about the police and the justice system demands an end to the criminalization of nonviolent, low-level drug offenses, which we are told have been 
responsible for mass incarceration of people of color. A lot of people are demanding that the police instead focus on the violent offender, the murderers and the rapists. Tell us about the violent offenders. When we think about criminals, we already have a population we otherize. That's why Chris Rock felt so comfortable doing it in his routine. On top of that level of otherization, there's another level that we reserve for violent criminals. We say that violent criminals are the worst of the worst. We don't have any sympathy, care, or concern for their well-being very often. Um, Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking work, The New Jim Crow, counted for its rhetorical efficacy on the idea that most of the people in prison are there for no, low-level nonviolent drug offenses. She said we went from 300,000 prisoners in 1980 to 2.2 million in the mid-aughts by locking up low-level nonviolent drug offenders. The reality is, as John Pfaff showed in his book, Locked In, when you look at the state system, which is where 87% of the prisoners reside, only 5 to 6% of them are there for low-level nonviolent drug offenses. When I take my students to, Quint to San Quentin and we spend time with the, in with, with the, with the people in the in, the, in San Quentin, I, I haven't seen a low-level nonviolent drug offender out there yet. I'm not saying there aren't any there. We don't run across them. What you're really dealing with, if you want to deal with decarceration and making deep cuts in mass incarceration, is racialized mass incarceration in particular, is violent and serious offenders. Most of the people going into state prisons every year are there going in for violent offenses. We have to come up with a new moral framework under the, under the you know, kind of new Jim Crow, the liberal new Jim Crow narrative under Michelle Alexander's narrative. You don't really need a new moral framework. You're just, all you need is to say that these low level nonviolent drug offenders who aren't any different than the rest of us should get some leniency, some human compassion. That's all. Treat them like you would treat yourself because you're just like them. When it comes to violent offenders, you're not saying that you're saying I'm not like a rapist. I'm not like a murderer. You know, uh, they're not, what they did isn't an ordinary expression of human frailty, you know, across the board anyway. And so you need to come up with a new moral compass to really address how we think about, feel about, and address that population of prisoners. And that's what uh, this book, Nigga Theory, is largely about. So then let's talk about what is the framework you have for treating what you call guilty black people who have committed violent offenses? We need to shift our focus from retribution, retaliation, and revenge, which has guided a lot of our penal policy for the last 30, 40 years, and still does in a lot of ways, shifted from that to redemption, rehabilitation, reconciliation, restoration. Those are just fundamentally different approaches predicated on the idea that this wrongdoer who did do something wrong, may, for example, in a violent act, caused a death and tore apart a family and caused tremendous suffering. And that can't be lowballed, downplayed, or, 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 or given short shrift in any way in any of these discussions. I don't try to, and I don't think these progressive prosecutors try to either. It's just that we try to come up with a way that can prevent that from happening again in the future, address the harm that has occurred, make sure that the wrongdoer is, is held accountable for that wrongdoing in some significant way, takes responsibility for it, 
owns it. You know, there are a lot of things we can do short of putting somebody in a, on a gurney and giving them a lethal injection or locking somebody up just for a life until they uh, get old and die of age or some pandemic that sweeps through uh, these prisons, which are the real hotspots of COVID-19 these days. So you say rehabilitation, redemption, and restoration, and you say that requires in us compassion and humility. Tell us about that. Yeah, the kind of humility that, that makes you unwilling, hesitant to make righteous moral judgments of others. It's the kind of humility that says, I have some epistemic humility about my capacity to know the just desserts of others. Because, you know, it's hard a lot of times to make those decisions, even if you don't bring in the racial bias factor. When I sit down, and I've sat down in San Quentin with my students and um, men doing life without parole and um, mothers of murder victims in a program called No More Tears, and each session goes roughly the same um, that I attended with my class. Um, uh, you know, a mother of a murder victim, for example, stand up and say, this is my loved one. Here's what losing my loved one did to our family. It tore us apart. Here's some pictures that we pass around. We see the loved one who was, 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 was killed and tore this family apart through the loss of that loved one. And then we sit with that. And then uh, uh, one of the men sends a life without parole for a um, typically a violent homicide would stand up and say, here's my victim. Here's the person whose life I took. And here's the family I caused this loss to, caused this pain and suffering to. All right. And, and let's say you have 10 minutes. He spent the first five minutes talking about that, passing pictures around. Then he spent the last half of his time saying, the person who did that, you know, who, who, who caused that death, who committed that, that heinous crime, was a depraved individual. Then he said, let me tell you how I became that depraved individual. Let me tell you about, and often the stories would be about the foster care homes I was put in from a very early age. They'd be locked in car trunks as a disciplinary measure for three and four hours at a time, the cigarette burns, the molestation. Let me tell you about how I became that person, right? And then we sit there with that, right? And it, it, it blunts the edge of our retributive urge to hear those other narratives, that other story about, you know, how it is that a lot of times victimizers are themselves victims, that hurt people hurt people, that morality itself is complex and we need to be, we need to embrace epistemic humility when it comes to making moral judgments in, you know, settings that are often like this in which we just don't have all the background information and we just can't judge another's just desserts with that kind of accuracy. Hurt people hurt people. Jody Armour, his new book on race, language, unequal justice, and the law is titled N-Word Theory with N-Word spelled N asterisk G-G-A. It's out now from LARB Books. It has an introduction by Larry Krasner, the radically progressive district attorney of Philadelphia, and a magnificent foreword by Melina Abdullah, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles. It's the number one new release on courts and the law at Amazon. Jody Armour, congratulations on this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. Always a pleasure.
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.